tremendous chapter we have before us today in chapter 40 of Isaiah. I was listening to our recording of, uh, of the Messiah and so many arias in the Messiah are taken right here from chapter 40. It's incredible. Um, if you're familiar a lot with that piece, I mean, you know, you can hear the tunes and all in these various parts as they go through. Uh, let me just read a little introductory material here before we get started on verse 1. Uh, chapters 40 through 55, or in chapters 40 through 55, the superiority of Yahweh and the falsity of other gods is proved in three ways. Number one, the ability to explain the past, which Yahweh does. Number two, the ability to tell the future. And number three, the ability to do things that are radically new. Isaiah had predicted the Babylonian exile. So his great theology becomes even greater when looking into the future. Chapters 40 through 66 are meant to be understood in the context of chapters 1 through 39. God has now illustrated the uselessness of trusting other nations or anything other than Yahweh himself. Chapter 40 follows immediately on Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Babylonian exile in chapter 39, which we'll read here uh, in a moment. Um, so, uh, beginning with chapter 40, we get into a lot of future prophecy. Among modern scholars, and yea, even some conservatives, uh, they get into this, there must be another author of Isaiah other than Isaiah number 1. There must be an author of Isaiah number 2, beginning in chapter 40, because how could Isaiah know these things with such detail? The problem with these scholars is they do not believe in predictive prophecy. They do not believe that prophets can actually prophesy. Now, prophecy, of course, uh, in a sense, uh, Brother Nick is doing this week by week as he preaches the gospel in a way that's prophesying. I mean, that is kind of prophecy. But also, in well, you know, in 300 years down the road, this is going to happen. Well, that's also prophecy, and that's what modern scholars reject. They say that's not possible. So in a sense, they're unbelievers, which is what I've always thought anyway. Uh, exactly. And, and uh, you can test these modern scholars if they're willing to be tested by asking them what is their opinion of the physical body of Jesus and the resurrection. I think you will find that not a one of them believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus. They believe in a spiritualized resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, they are lost people. Uh, unlike the teenager who doesn't really know. I mean, they're... They don't know. They don't know the information. They're struggling. They haven't read the Bible. They don't know. They don't know. But these 40 and 50 year old men, they don't know. Oh yeah, they know. They've read it. They've read all these volumes for all their life. I mean, they've read all the theology that's out there. Sure they know. 
And they rejected. They rejected. Who said that, Chris? They rejected. Yes, they rejected. So this is the same problem, although I suspect there's some saved people for sure who get into this Isaiah 2 stuff as possible that way. But the commentator that I read, a guy named Oswald, uh, uh, he's actually a Wesleyan, which I well, well, we'll put that aside for a moment. He's pretty, he's pretty good. I mean, Charles, he's, a Charles, he's more of a Charles Wesley type. He, he's pretty good. And uh, so anyway, he's, a, he's, he's an Isaiah guy. I mean, Isaiah all the way through. He goes through great scholarly pains, you know, to show his position and all that. So, But anyway, so we get into future prophecy here with chapter 40 and all this great messianic prophecy and stuff and Isaiah 53 and all this. Um, if a Jew will read their own Bible, they can be saved. All they have to do is read the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, problem, they don't read the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, they read the Mishnah, they read the Talmud, but they don't read the Bible. If they would read their Hebrew Scriptures, obviously they would simply be saved by reading Isaiah 53. And many of them have been by reading Isaiah 53. Yeah. So, uh, that's the problem. Yes, Jim? I'm just thinking the church is built on the prophets and the apostles. Exactly. Jesus Christ being the truth. But the prophets, even though they by the Holy Spirit of what would be all about Christ, the seed of Exactly. Exactly. They don't believe these things. They don't believe it. So that's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. All right. Uh, so Isaiah predicts already the Babylonian captivity. So let's back up to chapter 39, uh, verse 5, and just get a running start here. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Wow. And he's prophesying you know, on out into the future here. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs, woe, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my day. At least it won't happen to me. So I'm happy. <laughs> Keep the bucket down the road. He's not worried about his children. No, no, no. So, in light of the Sounds coming... Like a modern politician. <laughs> kick the can down the road. Yeah. yeah. But he does acknowledge that what God has decided to do is good. Okay. Very good. <laughs> For him, particularly. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a level of spiritual. Yeah. If you want to read it that way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this title was not bad. No. No. Well, if, if this didn't happen, maybe we'd not have a teaching on Sunday nights, living in Babylon. Living in Babylon, wow. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we begin then in uh, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, in King James, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Um, so, 
comfort ye my people or more directly to Isaiah you comfort my people and which he's going to do now by prophesying this good news is about the greatness of God and the encouragement of the Jews in the yet future Babylonian captivity so be encouraged here he's saying to the Jews this is also an extension of Isaiah's call in chapter 6 which is the people will not hear your message as you recall Isaiah's original call and then how long O Lord says Isaiah and he says until the cities lie waste without inhabitant as in the captivity so in the captivity the cities of Judah are pretty much wasted I mean it's just a, a ruin you know and so forth so Perhaps in the captivity or after the captivity, some people will listen, and they do. So I'm thinking here about the um, the captivity prophets, uh, namely Ezekiel and Daniel, and then Esther also, and then the return prophets. And I, you can help me here. I've got Ezra and Nehemiah for sure. Uh, after as the return is beginning to happen from Babylon. Uh, now help me, uh, Nick, or uh, the, the post-captivity prophets. In other words, prophets after Israel has come back from Babylon. I, I mean, uh, who are they? I mean, are Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah? Are post-captivity uh, mm-hmm. Zephaniah, Zechariah, and uh, Zechariah? And okay, Haggai. 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 How, how about Malachi? Uh, yes. Yeah, Malachi. I'm sorry. Uh, Stephanie, I may, I may be wrong about that. Well, but, but, but now yeah. Okay. And so a lot of the minor prophets, as you're saying, really are post exile after the yeah. return. Okay, great. So. I mean, there's a few of them that, that are contemporaries of these major prophets. Yes, like Hosea. Hosea, Obadiah, these men are, are, yes. are, are contemporaries, but, um, but those latter minor prophets are post exilic. Good. So indeed, I mean. Uh, no, it's, it's the last three. People are listening to the word of God after the exile. I mean, and of course, Israel changes. I mean, from being a basically a bunch of pagans, no matter how much Yahweh is speaking to them, until becoming really legalists. I mean, you know, Yahweh alone, but then worship of Yahweh becomes all rule keeping and all, all this legalism and adding to the law, all this stuff. So that they're, they're not having the right balance. I mean, they're going from one extreme to the other. They're going from paganism to Pharisaism. So they're not really, but they're listening to the, God, but interpreting it wrongly. Yes. The beauty of the scribes in Babylon, making sure that they save the scriptures, uh-huh. every jot and tittle. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I mean, what a what a glorious thing to do! What a work! Then, Absolutely. After they get back, they let that become kind of their god. Their god. So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to have the right understanding here. Okay. Uh, verses one and two. There's a threefold use of the word that. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Incidentally, the speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the Hebrew here is alev, which means to the heart of. It's the same word that Hosea uses, that I will allure her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there. I will speak to Jerusalem's heart. So God wants to speak to the heart of his people, not just in terms of law keeping, but shall we say, in terms of a personal relationship. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to speak to us that way. Okay, so there are three that's he's speaking to Israel here. That, her warfare is ended. 
that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her, uh, all her sins. Uh, so, uh, well, great. So, uh, your warfare has ended. Wonderful. So they've not known anything but warfare for hundreds of years. Your iniquity is pardoned. Wow. And she has received double from the uh, received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I, as we'll see, I don't think this is talking about work salvation here. But how would you like it <clears throat> if the Lord said to you, "I've beaten you up long enough now, and <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be at peace now." That would be okay, wouldn't it? <clears throat> All right. Verses three. She has received that already. She's received it already. Yeah, I know. By being exiled, yeah. she's been punished enough. Yeah, but it's been enough. Yeah, the exile's enough now. Yeah, exactly. Verse three. A voice cries. Uh, well, King James is better. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight in the desert. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Can't you just hear the Messiah here? And every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right. So this is not work salvation here. This is uh, this is God showing up, really. So we're not working our way toward God, but He is coming down to us in the incarnation. Um, this also is the beginning of the gospel of God. I mean, in a certain sense. Let's look at Mark uh, chapter one, verse one, uh, which in. Uh, which he simply says, this is the beginning of the gospel of God. All right. So I'm going to read it here. This is Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is where Mark starts. And he says, this is the way it starts. Of course, I mean, yeah, where is the beginning? I mean, you know, we could say, well, you know, the good news of God is there before creation. And in that sense, it has no beginning because, I mean, God has no beginning. But, uh, well, with creation, we might say this is the beginning of the gospel. I mean, on and on it goes. But anyway, Mark likes for this to be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying, and that quote is from Malachi, incidentally. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. And then Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And that's the beginning of the gospel of God. So John comes in to prepare the way. It's wonderful. Okay, I've been talking away. Does anybody want to add anything here? What thing you to talk about that double, double payment for her sins? sins? Yeah. You know, what, once you come into into acknowledging John the Baptist, Messiah come, Jesus coming, and you are ready to present yourself to him, generally we we see our sins a lot worse than we might see them before. Yeah. 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 So, oh, so sure. That, I mean, we. If, it may be that God didn't necessarily double their sin, double you know, the, the punishment for their sins, but that's the way we feel. But we see that really it's twice as many as we thought. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, I, and I think as we mature in Christ, as we, as we mature in Christ, our, the, the sins in our lives get even, I mean, we, we hate them even more. We, we acknowledge it was even worse. Paul himself said that. You know, he said he starts out. What does he start out? I am the least of the apostles, mm-hmm. and then he says, I am the worst of the Christians, and then he says, I'm the worst of everyone. Chief of all sinners. Chief of all sinners. Yeah. I mean, that's his transition. Yeah, yeah. The further closer to Christ he gets, the more he realizes how right. how undeserving he is mm-hmm. to be there. We see mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I think we, I think we are all on that journey. We see Wonderful. Love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude, yeah. Wow. There, there are a number of commentators who note that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah uh-huh. and 66 books of the Bible. Yeah. And it would be a mistake to push this too far, but uh, if you followed that pattern, chapter 40 is coincides with Matthew. Okay. Beautiful. So we go, we get into all this gospel, this New stuff, Testament stuff. Yeah, very but good. Back up to thirty-nine. You've got the promise or the threat of the promise of the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. Which uh, the the last books of the Old Testament reflect. You know, it's Malachi. Yes. With them living, still living under the thumb of, of it's not Babylon at that point. Right. Persia. Right. You've got Esther, you know, the mystical story of God's people living in Babylon. Yeah. And uh, the first part of that thing we just read in Mark is from is from Malachi. Yes. I will send that, my, right. my uh, witness before you. So yeah. it really is kind of amazing. It is. It is uh, pretty neat. Coupling there. Yeah. Very especially good. since since they, it was someone that came along later and dictated the way the way. Scriptures are put out. So, yeah, I mean it's 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 a mistake, I think, to spiritualize the chapters and verses too much. But I mean, it's just it is I know, very strange. Right. I've said I've seen that before. So to me, it's incredible. Yeah, break. Yeah, break. All right, let's look at verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. Uh, does anyone have any comment there? Connor does. Have y'all seen the the Byzantine cross? It's different than the crosses that we have. We just have the two lines. There's another version oh, of a cross like that, that one has down a third there. line yeah. that goes diagonal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Alright. The reason why they have that is this verse. It's the it's the high coming down and the low coming up. Huh. How about it's the, that? It's the raising and the elevating. And the moment of inversion happens at the cross. Yeah. That's why I've been talking about the great inversion throughout this study, because the cross is the moment when that happens. Yeah. yeah. What else? 
Well, that's the way the Romans fight. The conquerors would do that. You know, they, they're trying to conquer a city or something like that. They come in, they send the groundwork for them, making the way easier for them to get in. And so they, they'll come in and they level, level the ground or build up or whatever, fill in the gullies, you know, so that their army can march into them. Well, I would also say in verse 4, it seems to me that this is, again, the way salvation comes, that the ground becomes level. I mean, the, high, the higher brought down, the lowly are lifted up, and there it is. God. Yeah. Okay. I love the, the fact that they call the, the early Christians the children of the way. Level. Yeah. All right, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It seems to me that this is eschatological here. This is like the end of the age. At the very end, uh, all flesh seems to refer to the time of the end, perhaps. Uh, we might say that in terms of the gospel, all flesh sees it in the same way. Or, In other words, if it's not the time of the end, then everyone has to come to Christ the same way. I mean, <laughs> we've got to repent. We've got to believe that He's the Messiah of God, you know, forgiven for our sins. So that the way of salvation is the same. It's all it's all the same, and everybody that's I think saved sees it the same way. I mean, you, they're all kind of different. You know, we can get into all kind of different theological schemes and all of that. But in terms of the gospel coming into Christ, you know, it's the same. All flesh sees it the same. In a lot of ways, unless you're unless of some group of people that are so isolated, uh, almost everybody on the planet. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I mean, it's been marketed in such a way, but can't, if you look at it in any way, ultimately it leads to Jesus. Even the Muslims celebrate Christmas. <laughs> so, all flesh seems to refer to the time of the end. We might say that in terms of the gospel, all flesh sees it the same way. This is God's glory to forgive each one of us who believes that Jesus is God's Messiah. And that he has borne my sin in his body so that I am forgiven. Uh, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Glory in Hebrew is the word kabod, which also means heavy. So when we see God's glory, it's a, it is a heavy, you might say, experience. Just like the disciples of the transfiguration. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they don't know what to do or what to say. I mean, it's too heavy, man. So. All right, let's go to verse 6. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So all flesh is grass, James makes the same point, which is, I think, how great can we really be, you know? <laughs> or how, how, I mean, how great can the greatest people really be? Because uh, they're going to die, man. And, you know, we see them in the casket, and, well, weren't they great? Uh, yeah, but they can't even walk around now. I mean, so, you know, what is all this? human greatness except a bunch of pride and vanity and stuff like that. That's basically what it is. 
because all flesh is grass. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that are great, that we would consider great, acknowledge this. They're the most humble, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like St. Francis, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, all right. Let's go to verse 9. Uh, now we get into uh, uh, my author called this the peroration of this chapter here in Isaiah. I love the word peroration. I've been trying to figure out exactly what it means. I thought it was the oration before the final oration, uh, which maybe could be, but I like the definition I found. This is the emotional climax of the speech. This is the, the pinnacle where the orator is trying to, trying to grab your heart and mind, right? So uh, we're going to lift up the greatness of God a little bit here and also encourage the inhabitants of Zion a little bit here from Isaiah. Get you up into a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the good news. Now, so Zion has a purpose, which is they become God's messenger after the captivity to, to bring the truth of God uh, to the nations. And I'm seeing more and more on my study here of Isaiah, really, that the struggle in the Old Testament and with the Old Testament prophets and with Israel and with Zion and all that is a struggle for monotheism. It's a struggle for the peoples of the world, the pagans, to acknowledge that there's only one God. So this is the gospel message a lot in the Old Testament because we've got all this paganism. I mean, everybody has their national god, maybe 10 or 12 national gods, and on and on it goes. And Israel, Israel's message is, no, there's only one God. His name is Yahweh, and He's created everything. So this struggle goes on and on and on through the Old Testament. Uh, the struggle in the New Testament is to proclaim that Jesus is God in the flesh. So there's only one God in the New Testament. Jesus is God in the flesh. So that's our evangelistic purpose now. Get you up into a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms, and He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So verses 9 through 11, Zion now becomes the messenger of the greatness of God and the oneness of God and of the recompense that God brings. So what is His recompense for His flock? He gathers us up and leads us. He gives us a reward for things that He's doing through us. What kind of reward is that? So... The ministry that you've got, yeah, did you do this in your human strength or was it the Holy Spirit doing it through you? It was the Holy Spirit doing it through you. So God is doing all these good works in the world through you. It's Him that's doing it, but He rewards you. He doesn't reward Himself, He rewards you. So that's that's a great God. <laughs> what kind of a deal? <laughs> 
<laughs> what kind of a deal is that? I mean, so uh, he tends his flock and he gathers us like lambs in his arms and gently leads those that are with young. So God is the one who takes care of us and gives us a recompense. Verses 12 through 14. The uniqueness of God. This sounds a lot like the book of Job here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? <laughs> who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So this is a lot like Job, the uniqueness of God. He is the only one. Uh, this is so contrary to the religions of the day that had a plethora, a large number of local and national gods. They had these gods all over the place. These gods do not even exist, although demons may hide behind these idols and people actually, as Paul says, may be worshiping demons although they don't really know it. They think it's some kind of a god, but it's really a demon. So this is all spiritual confusion. God. Is there is there any place that you know of in Scripture that actually says that these gods don't exist? Because I can't think of one. They, they could exist, but if they in their existence, they would be demons. Exactly, exactly. That's be, an important distinction, though. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I don't really know. I... I, my, my thinking and guess would be that some of these are simply vain human thoughts. Yeah. But some of them could have power. Well, well, you know, I mean, you know, you go to these primitive countries and these witch doctors, it's not like these witch doctors are fools. I mean, they can do stuff. But they're doing it through demonic power. Or that these principalities don't seem to have, they do seem to have some sort of influence. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There, there, there's a verse where it has little gods. Yeah, there's a verse that says your gods are not gods. Yeah. We sang one of those songs last Sunday. Yeah. So, so there's a distinction, you know. Yeah. That doesn't mean there's nothing behind there. Right. There may be but something behind gods. it, but they're not They're not Yahweh. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like principalities of the Yahweh. Yeah. I would argue that anyone that goes has a false god, that false god is it, well, I mean, it, it's, that's it's quite possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's laughing all the way to the bank. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Okay, well, this is great. Okay. So, again, this is Israel's, or Zion's evangelistic task. They're trying to present the one true God, Yahweh, and not these demons. I mean, get away from these demons. I mean, we're not... We want to worship the one true God. So this is this is their job, their task in Israel. I think even that phrase speaks to this point that we want to worship the one true God. God Yahweh is the God above all gods. Meaning these gods exist even though they're divine. Very good. Thank you. Okay, this is good. All right. Okay. Uh, all right, let's go to... Wait. So... Who could compare Yahweh, our great creator, to other of these gods? Uh, this is evolution's problem and evolution's struggle. They're trying to create a creator 
that is a force but not a person. They're trying to create some kind of an intelligent force but not a person. So if God is not a person, then there's no responsibility to this creator. So this is the false God that evolution is trying to create. But it's just too bizarre. I mean, like Dr. Wang, the famous eye surgeon said, he's from China. He said he gave up evolution in his further studies of the human eye. It is, it's, just, it's just way too complex. It's just, it's just too complex. <laughs> well, the more, the more science looks, looks at them, you know, the more they can now see deeper into things, the more they realize that this it's is too intelligent design. It's, it's, it, it, absolutely, it's too complex. It's, you know, it's impossible for the eye to work unless it, it's made like that in the first place. I know, I know. It can't evolve. It can't evolve, no. So the, the, the Greek version of this passage is really fun. <laughs> to whom then will you liken God? What image? What image? What image? <laughs> what, okay. I, what icon? I know, let's see. Wooden carved yeah. statue. Very good. So Christ holds up the coin and he says, Whose icon is this? Whose image? <laughs> Very yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. All right, let's go to verse 15. I think we've read that. We'll read it again. We're talking about the greatness of the one God here. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon, of course, was famous for all those cedars. And they say, you could, we, that's not even enough for a good fire for Yahweh. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. In verse 17, this emptiness is the same tohu word in Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void. It empty, it's empty, empty, empty. Or it could be chaotic also. Uh, so it's God who makes these nations and overrules their existence and so forth. Verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it? And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. So, this is sarcasm here, really. So Isaiah is saying, well, is this creator then like a piece of wood? I mean, is that what you really think? A stick? <laughs> the, Assyrian, the Assyrian king, the idol that he had, um, it said the name of it earlier in Isaiah. His name was Nisroch. Nisroch, yeah. Nisroch was a piece of wood from Noah's Ark. Okay, yeah, yeah. So when he's talking about this, he's actually mocking Mocking this that. Idol, talking about this petrified wood yeah. that Sennacherib no, found, yeah. and that he thinks it has some sort of special Miss power. Oh yeah, very good. But any significance of it is just tied to the biblical story, and it goes back to Genesis. So yeah. even even the significance of the wood itself goes back to beautiful. Yahweh. Yeah. Beautiful. The devil works off enough. He wants to take. He sort of takes something that is partial truth that, that comes from God, yeah. and he diverts it into something that's not. This is what we do. He tries to do that with Jesus with quoting scripture. Yeah. Yeah. All right, verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
Okay, this is a phrase he'll use again in this chapter. So we need to know, we need to listen. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And he's talking to Israel here. You guys need to get on board with your evangelistic purpose here. Uh, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. Emptiness here again is the Hebrew word tohu from Genesis 1-2. Formless and void, or empty. Or the idea could be chaos here. Uh, well, indeed, God can and evidently does make the nations into chaos. Uh, I'm not sure we have a really highly ordered world that we're living in. <clears throat> uh, he can make the rulers of this world into madmen. Uh, well, yes, uh, this could happen. Yes, it certainly could. <clears throat> Verse 24, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And see, who created these? He's talking about the stars. He brings out their host by number, and he calls them by name. All right, David, here we go about the stars. The stars are not gods. They may have represented gods like the ancients believed. So who created these stars? And who calls them out by name like a shepherd, the great shepherd of the stars? The stars are not eternal. They were created by Yahweh. Before the beginning, there was nothing. And then we have a beginning. <laughs> he calls them out by name. So now, and this estimate changes all the time as the James Webb Space Telescope gets more and more, peers further and further out into space. The current estimate, I don't know if this is even current, the current estimate of galaxies in the universe is between 6 and 20, all right, wait for it, trillion galaxies. Between 6 and 20 trillion galaxies. Galaxies, not stars. What's a trillion anyway? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> wait. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Okay, wait for this now. Wait for this. You don't even know this word. So now the estimate is, in terms oh, yeah. of stars, that our universe contains at least 70 septillion stars. I'm sure that's an unknown word for you. That is a seven followed by 23 zeros. Stars. Uh, David? Huh? Say the whole sentence again. 70 septillion stars. Seven followed by 23 zeros. No, no, I meant before that. Our universe contains. <laughs> okay, thank you for It's hard to measure a billion, let alone a trillion. Chris? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, to, to help, at least what helps me to put that perspective a little bit, is um, I heard it said once that if you started counting from one to a trillion, you would you would die oh, before yeah. you break Before you get there. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
You will take, take more than an entire lifetime. It's a huge number. Oh, yeah. Okay, David, now we're going to get your information and then we're going to update it. If we think about the number of grains of sand on the earth and compare that with the stars, David, I think you had a number on that. Yeah, well, because they, they did estimate, I can't remember what the estimate was. This university tried to estimate how many grains of sand there were on the planet. But then they realized that there were more stars than there were grains of sand on the earth. Okay. Well, here's the current information. Current estimates are from astronomers that there exist roughly 10,000 stars for every grain of sand. Oh my God. 10,000 stars for every grain of sand. Oh my you think, God. You think God, God named them all? And, I mean, what do you run out of names? Well, there's, yeah, well I, I did a calculation on this once. If you roughly calculate the number of languages that are spoken on the earth and the number of words, estimate and to multiply, there's not enough words in all the languages in the world to name all these stars. Wow. <laughs> so he's inventing. He's inventing he's names. Oh, he's invent oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. God speaks in tongues. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> all right. So with all this amazing information, uh, then, in verse 27, uh, well, let's read verse 26 again. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing that's verse 26 not one star is left out no he knows he knows everyone yeah. and boy he created he created those three facts by his words <laughs> yeah alright verse 27 why do you say O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Now, in light of all this amazing current scientific information, which is explained by the Scripture here, that God knows all these stars by name, do you think He doesn't know you? Yes. And everything about you? Yes. He knows the number of hairs. Yeah. Both good works and bad works. He knows everything. He knows everything. We can't hide it. No. He knows your thoughts. He knows every thought that you will ever think before you were born. Uh, that's, thought of. that's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and even the thought of this cheapness is sin. So he knows all about it. Yeah. This, is, this is the key to praying continually. Okay. He knows every thought that passes through your brain. So you consider every thought as a prayer. Well, okay. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by. I'm not sure, other than this could be some kind of a I don't know could be some kind of reference to work salvation, you know. Be what you think is right, yeah. not necessarily what God is. Is, it, is, it, is he saying right as in like what is due me, or is he saying like his right hand? Justice. Is that, uh, that's maybe, yes. He may be saying what is due me. Yeah, yeah that, that might be better. Ah, uh, just even better. The Septuagint says, and my God has taken judgment away and removed it. Whoa. So in light of all my good works, God owes me salvation because I've done so much good in my life. I've tried to help people. Yeah. 
as the dope addict told me one time. I just want to help people. <laughs> I said, well, friend, you need to learn how to help yourself or you can help anybody else. You know, all my good works, all my good works, let's add them up one by one. <laughs> it sounds like he's, he's making different, different claims here. First of all, I can hide things from God. Boo. <laughs> but also, the things I lift up to him, he ignores. Yeah, I mean, he's so, so, he's, so he's, he's wanting to have it both ways. <laughs> okay, all right, very good, very good. Okay, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? And there's that phrase again, he's repeating. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. There it is again, he's just repeating, he's just repeating. He does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Oh, wow. Where, where does it say who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct Him? Is that in Proverbs? Or maybe, I'm not sure. Okay, here's some famous verses now, so maybe we can pray these for ourselves. I know that I'd like to pray them for myself. <clears throat> he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the young men shall faint and be weary, and young men shall utterly fall, says King James. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this mighty God can give us power and endurance. Physically, yes. But then on the other hand, everyone has to die. So I mean, this is not going to always last. But He does, I would think indeed, give us endurance. And faith, hope, and love. And those can endure. He gives us that spiritual endurance, you know, of belief and uh, worship and so forth. All right. That's what I have today on Isaiah chapter 40. One thing that's interesting, Go ahead. The, uh, that, that very famous quote at the end of Isaiah 40, if you've ever seen chariots of fire, when they're running on the Sabbath day and they're falling, and they go back to the church. And this is this is the passage he's pointing. Wow! How about it? Wow! They shall run and not be you know so. And then and then yeah. also clash. I mean, the, the, remember the Titans? Yeah. When they start coming together, they they start seeing this. They start singing this verse. They should they should they will not grow weary. I mean, he's pumping them up. It's one of the one of the players on the team was pumping up the rest of the team by just almost. Probably the pastor. Yeah, he's yeah. a city. Yeah, city, yeah sure. and, and they all just join in, man, and they, they're unbeatable. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Thank you for your attention. We'll stop here. We'll continue next week. So thank you. Yeah, a lot of people use that program.